All right. Last week we started and launched into a new series of called What Is? And uh, really we're going through and asking uh, questions of the faith. Uh, last week we talked about what is God? Uh, this week we're going to look at uh, we're going to look at the Bible, but we're asking these questions and we're saying, "Hey, listen, we do not want to be a people who check our brains at the door. We want to be a people who are thoughtful, who can give an account or a reason for the faith that is within us." Okay, and so I was super encouraged last week, one by all the questions I had after all the people who called me or messaged me and said Brenton was super helpful for me. I had from twelve year olds to uh, 70-year-olds reach out and say, hey, I've got a question about this, or I'm trying to think through that. Uh, Help me understand this. And uh, Or, man, that was super helpful. I was able to finally kind of think through some things I had never really understood before. So super encouraging for me. So let's dive into this week, week two. Um, When I was a youth pastor um, a long time ago, uh, way long ago. Um, I, I was teaching one Wednesday night in, in youth, and, and I don't really remember what I was teaching about or what, but I remember um, uh, asking kind of a question to the class, and one girl who was a senior at the time who had who'd been a believer for quite a while and kind of was pretty smart gave an answer, and it was kind of like, oh, that's interesting. Okay, and so I needed to ask a follow-up question. Can I kind of see where she was coming from? So I asked a follow-up question, and she said, well, really, I don't know. Uh, I just remember that's kind of how it happened in Bruce Almighty. The movie. And, 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 and at that moment, I really kind of wasn't sure whether to laugh or cry. And I think we'd be surprised at how often we find that we believe things because part of our tradition. We believe things because it's just what we were always taught. We believe things because we saw it in a movie or Bugs Bunny talked about it. Last week, we said that the only way that we can know anything at all about God is if he chooses to reveal it to us. And we can only know those things about God that God chooses to reveal to us. But sometimes, we, you've probably seen this or heard this, people will say things like, you know, Brent, I just can't believe in a God who would do this. Well, Brent, I just can't believe in a God who would think or say or believe or do that. I can't believe in a God like that. I can't believe in a God who would send someone to hell, or I can't believe in a God who would think that this or that is a sin. And what happens is we begin to create God kind of in our image, right? We, we create in a God that we can kind of get on board with. I can get on, a God, I can get on with a God that is like this. I can, I can get with that. I can believe in a God who's like this, not like that. We can believe in a God who basically agrees with me on everything. If we could somehow quantify it, I think we would truly be shocked by how much our thinking has been based on things other than the Bible. You know, I'm fallible. I don't know if y'all know this or not. What? (laughs) Shocker, news alert, I am fallible. When I get up here to talk to you and, and to teach to you, I might be right, I might be wrong, I might be somewhere in the middle. And the only way that you can know one way or the other is by comparing what I say to this book, the Bible, and how God has revealed himself to us in his word. You know, the Protestant Reformation happened because one guy named Martin Luther started reading the Bible and questioning things, questioning practices of the church, 
It was the Bible that trumped the church's traditions, the church's teachings, and wrong practices of the time. Out of the Protestant Reformation came five truths that we call the five solas. One of those five solas is sola scriptura, the Latin phrase sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. And so what we believe about is that uh, we, we believe things because the Bible tells us so. We learned this a long time ago, right? Jesus loves me, this I know, because, right? Not because tradition tells me I should believe this. Not because my pastor tells me I need to believe this. Not because I watched it on a movie or because I read it in a book. Unless it's this book. You know, it's amazing when you go read stories about missionaries who get captured on the field, missionaries who get thrown in prison uh, for sharing the gospel. One of the things that you often find is that they'll sometimes either smuggle in a Bible or a ripped page out of the Bible, and they'll hide it on their person somewhere, and they'll, they'll read it, and they'll pass it to one another and keep it hidden because the word of God is like an anchor and a refreshing thing that keeps them going while their captors torture them, imprison them, and hurt them. They cling to it, to this one page because it is their very anchor and hope in life. See, the Bible is the foundation for everything we believe. It is the foundation for everything we believe. So much so that if the Bible is wrong, then what we have believed is wrong. If the Bible is not trustworthy, then we have built our lives on a myth and a fairy tale. The Bible is wrong, we are wrong. So this morning, we must dig in and answer the question, what is the Bible? I have a mask in mine. What is the Bible, and can it be trusted? What is the Bible, and can it be trusted? To answer this question, we need to first go back and understand the history of how we even got this book where this Bible came from, how it was derived. So that's where we're going to start at first. The Bible was written, so if you've got, got your worship guide, there are blanks you can fill out in there. You can go in the app, and there's the thing that you can do it there. Uh, take some notes at the end. Come ask me all your questions. So blank one. The Bible was written by over 40 different authors over a span of 1,500 years. A lot of the early writings of the Bible were passed down by oral tradition, right? They were, and then eventually they were written on stone tablets and then on animal skins and then on early forms of paper. But in whatever medium these stories were passed down, you know, the creation story, the story of the fall, the story of the flood, whatever, however these stories were passed down, oral tradition or written on tablets, they were told in meticulous detail copying or retailing in exact fashion because this was their history. This is what God was doing and had done, and remembering it exactly was super important to the Jewish people. We know that that was the case because when we find manuscripts, and a manuscript, I'm going to talk about that word a few times, a manuscript just means a copy, a copy of the original. So when we look at the manuscripts, we can find that the same story, when you look at 6,000 copies of the same story, they are within 99.8% accuracy of one another. And so we know that it's super important to get these stories right. And when scribes would copy them, they would make sure every letter was exact. Even if there was a typo or whatever, they'd get it exactly right. 
understand, there was not a time when some guy just sat down and decided to write the Bible. There wasn't a time where some guy just said, hey, I need to put all this together. I need to think through, just, I want to make up a religion. Let me write this book everybody's going to follow. It's not the case. It took 1,500 years and over 40 different authors to come up with the Bible that we have today. The first five books were written by Moses. And for a long time, that was the Bible. The Bible was the first five books. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It was called the Torah. Anytime you read through the Bible, you see Torah, book of the law. They're referring to these first five books. And then slowly, as history progressed, this wisdom literature was added. The, the, the Proverbs, the Psalms, Song of Solomon. Kids, don't go read that one. Job. And then, uh, as history continues to unfold and history happens, First and Second Samuel is written down. First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, recording the history of Israel as it was taking place. And as time passed, God would send prophets, and they would write down their prophecies and write down the stories of their lives, and they would be added to the Bible. And as the Old Testament comes to an end with the prophet Malachi, there is 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. 400 years where there's no prophets, there's no adding to the Bible, there is no uh, scripture being added, there nothing. It's silent. God isn't speaking. And so by the time Jesus comes on the scene, the Old Testament is cemented. It is, here, here it is. We have it. Um, they're not adding anything. It's done. It's complete. And then Jesus comes, he lives, he teaches, he dies, he's raised from the dead, and he ascends to heaven. Now I'm going to come back to this in, uh, in a minute, but within the lifetime of Jesus, or within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses of Jesus, rather, the entire New Testament is written. This is super important. We're going to get back to it. But within the, time of, the lifetime of the eyewitnesses of Jesus, the entire New Testament is written. The first four books of the New Testament we call the Gospels. Not because they are the Gospel, but because they are telling the story of Jesus. So the first four books do that from four different perspectives. Then you have the book of Acts, written by Luke, telling the story of how the early church came to be. Describing what happened after Jesus left and the disciples building the early church. And then there are a series of letters that Paul and Peter and other guys wrote, and they would send them to churches, and that church would copy it down, keep theirs, and send theirs on to another church, and they would begin to circulate. And it ends with this vision from Jesus recorded by John about how Jesus will return. Now, all of the Old Testament, right, is, is cemented and agreed upon by this time, and it was established as Scripture. And all of these letters and accounts of the life of Jesus are being copied and shared, and time is going on. And so what happens is over the next 100 or so years, different councils would get together, churches would get together, and they would uh, uh, have kind of decide, okay, what, is going to, what, what are we going to add to the scriptures to talk about Jesus? What are we going to put in the Bible? How are we going to canonize it? How are we going to make it one big book? And there was broad consensus over which letters and which histories would be brought into the Bible. There were criteria, right? Like who wrote it? Um, when did they write it? Was it early enough? If the book wasn't written for 100 years after Jesus, they wasn't, get, wasn't gonna make it in. So who wrote it? When did they write it? Uh, it was the content consistent with the, with the beliefs of the church and the teachings of Jesus? 
Was there general agreement across the board that this was scripture that needed to be added? And after kind of a period of time, these councils meeting together, they finally agreed on all of the books that ought to be in the Bible, and they closed it. They put it all together, said, this is the Bible, this is the canon, and no more books can be added. If archaeologists today dug up in the city of Corinth, 3 Corinthians, which we know exists because Paul refers to other letters that he wrote to the Corinthian church that we don't have. And so if the archaeologists dig up and discover the 3 Corinthian letter, we would not add it to the Bible even though Paul wrote it, because everything Paul wrote did not become scripture. So we would not add it. The canon is closed. The Bible is complete. And we got to know that. So that is the briefest overview of how we got the Bible. But we need to ask a harder question. Can we trust it? Can we trust the Bible? The Bible claims of itself to be the very words of God. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture, all scripture is breathed out by God. That's the very words of God. Not some of it, but all of it is breathed out by God. That God is speaking all of the scriptures to us. Breathed out is probably a reference to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit in Hebrew is the word which also can be translated wind. And so the Holy Spirit breathed out breath, probably what he's referring to there, which makes sense of 2 Peter 1, 20-21 that says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All right, so let me, let, me, let me help you understand this. When Paul or Moses or Peter or whoever is writing, they don't sit down and kind of go into this trance and the Holy Spirit takes over their arm and they write the Bible. That's not what happens, right? Paul simply is saying, hey, uh, the Corinthians need to hear from me. I need to write them this letter. And he sits down and he puts pen to paper and he writes this letter to them. But at the same time, the Holy Spirit, God, was inspiring him moving him, influencing him in such a way that as he wrote, he was writing the very words of God for them and for us today. So as Paul wrote, God was also writing at the same time. Uh, One of the things that we see is interesting. In Mark 7, 9 through 11, we see Jesus refer to Moses' words in the Old Testament as the words of God. So Jesus even believed that the earliest writings of, of Moses weren't just Moses speaking, but were God speaking. In 2 Peter 3.16, it's interesting. Peter, who was a contemporary of Paul, right? They're like alive at the same time. Peter, in, his, in, in 3.16, refers to Paul's letters that he's currently writing. He says, as, as also the other scriptures. He refers to them as scripture. So can we trust the Bible? We'll first understand that the Bible claims of itself that it is the word of God, it is authoritative, and it can be trusted, that the Bible is a final authority. Now you say, Brent, we can't just believe that the Bible is our final authority because the Bible says that the Bible is our final authority because that is circular reasoning, right? We can't just trust the Bible because the Bible says trust the Bible, right? But understand this, at the end of the day, All final authorities are circular and can only appeal to themselves. No matter what the final authority is, 
whether that be science, the Bible, or you. Whatever you want to believe is ultimate authority. At the end of the day, it must appeal ultimately to itself. Because if it appeals to anything else as the reason it's the ultimate authority, then it no longer is, but the thing it appealed to is. If you say we can trust the Bible because the science says trust the Bible, well, then the Bible is not the final authority. Science is the final authority. If you say we can believe the Bible because history says we can, then history is our final authority. Whatever we appeal to becomes that. So at the end of the day, we've got to trust. We're saying that at the end of the day, we trust the Bible because the Bible says Believe the Bible is the word of God because the Bible says it's the word of God. Because it says that it's true, because it says that it's reliable. The Bible makes the claim of itself. Now let me be clear. And this is also true of every other thing, right? Like science, at the end of the day, people who think science is the final authority, at the end of the day have to believe it because science says it is. Or math or whatever this may be. Now let me be clear about something. We are not saying, oh, we're just not, we're just going to blindly believe that. We're just going to blindly believe because the Bible says it's the final authority that we're going to take it that way. Because other books, the Quran says it's the authority. Science says it's an authority. Other religious books say they're the authority. So we, we can't just believe it because it says it. We can't just turn our brains off and spin on wheel and say, which authority are we going to pick? Which book are we going to trust? Maybe the Bible, maybe science, maybe the Quran. You see, while we must not appeal to anything to be the definitive reason why the Bible is trustworthy, we can examine the arguments against the Bible's claims of authority and ultimately point to other things that verify the evidence and confirm that the Bible's claims are reliable. So let's look at some of those. Bless you. Some people argue that the Bible cannot be trusted because it's a legend, it's a myth, that it didn't actually happen, right? Or, or that if it did, that we don't really have the accurate account of what, was, of what actually happened in the Bible. Uh, that, so it's really just legend, and what's in the Bible is not history, it's not true. There are a few problems with this. One, it takes at least 100 years for legend to form. It takes at least 100 years for legend to form. And this is because... Within 100 years, the people who were alive during the event, some of them are still alive. And when, the, when you say, hey, this happened, they're like, no, it didn't. I was there. It didn't, that didn't happen. So it takes at least 100 years for legend to happen. Let me give you an example. In 1969, families from all around the country gathered around their televisions. I think they were in black and white, but I'm not sure because I wasn't there. But I hear that they were. They gathered around their televisions and watched as this young man from Lebanon, Ohio, Neil Armstrong, took the first steps onto the moon. The country cheered. Fast forward 50 years, and there are already people claiming that it didn't happen. There's a whole documentary on Netflix about how it was fake. And you can listen to all the arguments. You can listen to whether or not it happened and try to figure that out. Or, up in, at least until 2012, you could have drove a couple minutes down the road here, knocked on Neil Armstrong's door and say, bro, be straight with me. Did you really step on the moon? And today, you can still go to his partner, Buzz Aldrin, who was there with him, and ask him, did this happen? We have firsthand account. 
See, the Bible was written by people who either knew Jesus personally or had connections to those who did, who were eyewitnesses of him. The entire New Testament is written within the lifetime of the eyewitnesses of Jesus, which means it's too early for any legend to take form. Because some of that did happen, right? There are all kinds of books. You watch the History Channel, all kinds of crazy books uh, that were written about Jesus, and they didn't make it in the Bible. Because people said, that's not true. I was there. I saw it. Legend had no time to form. Paul even claims in 1 Corinthians, he says, hey, listen, over 500 people saw Jesus after he was resurrected, so if you don't believe me, just go ask them. They were there. They saw him. He says, don't just take my word for it. The authors of the Gospels uh, actually do this other thing where when you read the, the Gospel accounts, you will find these minor characters that and their names are mentioned. Like when Jesus is carrying the cross and he stumbles and has a hard time, tells us, tells us this guy named Joseph came and helped him carry the cross. Why does it mention this guy's name? Because the point is, hey, that guy's still alive. You want to check me? You want to fact check me? Go ask him. You can confirm the account. Not only that, but now we have more than 6,000 copies or manuscripts of every book of the Bible. And they are all within 99.8% accuracy of one another. And compare that to the fact that we have 10 copies, 10 manuscripts or copies of the works of Aristotle who was before Jesus. And we regard all of those accounts to be factually and historically reliable and true. If 10 of those and 6,000 copies of the books about Jesus that are with a 99.8% accuracy of one another, there is significantly more historical evidence to believe in the historicity of the Bible than the early Greek philosopher Aristotle. Now, now, maybe you say, what about contradictions, though, Brent? Okay, maybe, we, maybe the Bible's not a myth. Maybe it's not just a legend. Maybe it's historically reliable and accurate. Maybe that's true. But what about contradictions? Like, isn't the Bible full of contradictions? Let me give you an example. Um, you know, Brent, one of the gospel accounts say that there was one angel at the tomb when Jesus was resurrected, and another gospel account says there were two angels. See, the Bible's not true because it's, it's contradictory. But, but this is actually just a retelling of the same event from two different perspectives. For one of the guys writing, it was important to get the fact that there were two angels there. To get that down, it was important for him. For the other guy, <laughs> that didn't matter. Hey, there was an angel there, but Jesus was resurrected. We're going to move on. Just like if, if, if we grabbed a couple of us in this room and we got together and we retold the same story. We, we, we say we were at the same event and we retold the same story. There would be differing details. Some of us would say that there were this many people here or there were that many people there or it ended at this time or that time or we would get little, we'd get the big things right but there'd be little things we differed on. If you're married, you know this. You go to an event together and you come back and you ask each other how it went or what happened and you saw things from different perspectives and different sides. And like, you, my wife's telling me all about how this happened and I'm like, I didn't see any of that. What are you talking about? And so when we would write those things down, the, 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 the big parts would be the same, but the little details might get mixed up because I cared about things she didn't care about. She cared about things I didn't care about. And that is the same thing that is true when we read the same story from different accounts. They're just writing it from their perspective. The Bible doesn't contradict itself. It, it tells the same story from different perspectives. 
What about when the Bible is wrong in terms of science? If God is, if, if they'll argue, the Bible is God speaking and some things are scientifically wrong and if God is all-knowing, then his word should be super scientifically accurate. For example, the Bible talks about in one story how the sun stood still, the sun stopped moving in the sky. And, you know, they believed at that time that the sun rotated around the earth, right? They didn't understand the universe like we do, right? So when the Bible says that the sun stood still, that was wrong. That's not true. The earth had to stop moving, not the sun. And though the, but here, here's the thing. Though the Bible is God's word, it is written by human. That's not to say that when the human authors wrote that it, that it can be an error, but it is to say that they weren't put into this trance and God took over when they wrote. They write from their perspective and their understanding. And so from their perspective, the sun did stand still. They were not intending to write about the workings of the planets and their rotation. They simply wrote from their observation. God is not concerned in the Bible of writing a scientific textbook. If he wanted to do that, he could blow us out of the water and do that. He isn't, that's not what he's doing. He is instead content to let the human author write from his perspective current knowledge. So, Brent, what about when the Bible supports sinful things like polygamy or child sacrifice? You know, this is, the one, this is one I hear a lot, particularly on the news. You get on the news and they'll have some, some guest on who wants to, you know, argue why the Bible's outdated and we shouldn't trust the Bible anymore. Well, you know, it's, it's all, that's all tr- old tradition and outdated or whatever. We can't trust the Bible. And they'll often say, you know, the Bible uh, is for polygamy. The Bible can, is, is, thinks polygamy is a good thing. Well, that's not true. To do that is to, to read it that way is to read the Bible as this flat book meaning that the Bible is just a list of do's and don'ts. But the Bible is full of stories of ups and downs and characters who try to do good and in the end up doing a lot of bad. You see, here, here's, you got to understand this. This is really important. There is a difference between what the Bible describes and what the Bible prescribes. There's a difference between what the Bible descri- describes and prescribes. This is important. Pres- prescribing something is affirming that it should or should not be done. Prescribing this is the way. This is the way. No Mandalorian fans, come on. Describing something is simply retelling what happened, describing the event. For example, the Bible prescribes that murder is a sin. It prescribes that. It doesn't just describe murder. It says no. It goes out of its way to say this is sin. Wrong. Don't murder anybody. However, the Bible does never prescribes polygamy or child sacrifice as a good thing. It simply describes it happening. It's the story in the event. They did it, but usually it goes really poorly, right? Like polygamy, when it's happening in the Bible, it's never glorified or shown as this good thing. It's done, and it usually goes bad, but it never prescribes it. It simply describes it it's telling, in telling the story. See, we've got to read the Bible and understand that context is king. We have to read the Bible on its terms, not our terms. Not just looking for little arguments to debunk it, but read the Bible as it was intended to be read, intended to be read by its author. 
So it is inaccurate to say that the Bible supports, defends, or is okay with polygamy. It's not. It simply describes when it happens. Now, someone might say, well, Brent, fine then. Well, the Bible is a good book full of wisdom, but surely in 2021, you don't take it literally. Surely the Bible is full of some good teachings and some good things, but surely you don't take it literally. All right, let me, I want you to hear this phrase. It's in your notes. This is important. We believe that all of the Bible is true. That may or may not mean literal. We don't believe all of the Bible is literal. That would be silly. The Bible comes in different literary genres, and it should be read in accordance with the rules of that genre. For example, we should not read the book of Proverbs or Psalms which is a wisdom literature, in the same way we read the history of 1 Samuel. The Psalms and Proverbs and, and the parables of Jesus. The parables of Jesus aren't literal. They're not real. They didn't actually happen. It's just a story Jesus is making up to make a point. Much of Revelation, depending on how you read it, is, is not literal. The book of Jonah, like we've been studying the past six weeks before last week, is historical book. It's literally true. But when you read Psalms, a book of songs, what, what, what are often in songs but hyperbole and metaphor and simile and illustration? We don't read the book of Psalms super literally. Sure, there's some literal things in there, but most of it's hyperbole and metaphor. And it's a song. Don't read it literally. When any of the Bible is read within the genre and context intended by the author of the book, it is true and authoritative. It does, don't get stuck on this thing that it has to be literal. Literal doesn't mean true. It's all true within the context of its genre. Now, someone might say, well, I trust the words of Jesus in the Bible, Brent. I get what you're saying. Okay, the Bible's can be trusted. But you know what? I trust, I trust Jesus in the Bible. The words, you know, in some Bibles, uh, they're called red-letter Bibles. The, when Jesus speaks, the words are in red. Okay? I trust the red words, Brent. But all those other words, I'm not sure about all the other. Paul, that guy, later writes all those letters in the New Testament. I'm not sure about that guy, Brent. I trust the red letters with Jesus' words, but I don't know about the other words. This is sadly a huge error not just outside of the church, but inside of the church. When my sister was getting married, uh, her pastor at the time, a Southern Baptist pastor, was sitting at the rehearsal dinner talking to him. And we were talking about uh, women's role. Can women be ordained as pastors? And I was kind of talking through that. And, and I made a point from 1 Corinthians, one of Paul's letters, kind of said, well, what about this? And he said, oh, you can't take Paul seriously. And I'm like, just like, I'm like in seminary still, like in undergrad. And I'm like, is that a joke? Is this supposed to be funny? No, but he went to Duke, so it kind of makes sense, you know what I'm saying? But there are, there are tons of people who say, we'll take Jesus' words, authoritative and true and important, but if Paul seems to contradict him or if Paul like, says something that's kind of out of whack, we'll kind of just, when Jesus talks about love, we'll kind of overwrite that. But we can't do that. We believe that, first of all, Jesus didn't write Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? Someone else wrote those? And we believe that all of the Bible, written by different human authors, 
but one divine author. Written by different human authors, but one divine author, breathed out by the Holy Spirit, like we've already talked about, who's God. John 1.1 reminds us that Jesus is the Word. So from Genesis to Revelation, beginning to end, all the words are equally true. And, sh- and if you have a red-letter Bible, every word should be in red. Because when the Bible speaks, it is Jesus, the Word of God, who is speaking. The Logos, John 1. All of the words are God's. There are no words and no authors that are superior to others. The Bible is consistent in its teaching. And just because Paul, the human author, says something that you don't like, just because Paul says something that you don't really care about, doesn't mean you can reject it and say, well, Jesus didn't say it, so I ain't going to believe it. When Paul speaks in the Bible, it is Jesus speaking through him. Someone might say, but Brent, what about, what about translations? Translate, can we really trust the Bible when we were reading a translation when some other guy translated it for us? Well, in 1947, a little boy in Palestine discovered a cave on the beach containing tons and tons and tons of earlier and better preserved manuscripts of the Bible than we currently had. And as they got them, they confirmed both the accuracy of the current Bible that we have today um, and its reliability. We call them the Dead Sea Scrolls. It is true that when you translate anything, you are going to lose some emphasis. You're going to lose a little bit of the deeper meaning and understanding. But when you are able to translate a book from the original language of Greek and Hebrew and some Aramaic into English using 6,000 copies of that book, The result is an English translation that you can trust and that is reliable. Now, a little information about translation. There are some people who wrongly argue that the King James Bible is the only Bible that is from God. Um, Some people get really intense about that. And some go as far as to say that you must not only use the King James Bible, but the one that was translated in 1611. Which, any of you have King James in here? You ain't got that one, I promise you. And that's not true that that's the only Bible you can read. Uh, There are actually English translations before King James. In 1380, John Wycliffe translates the whole Bible into English. But he translated it from Latin into English, so it has to go through another language. It's not great. In 1455, the Gutenberg Latin Bible was the first Bible on the printing press. In 1525, William Tyndale makes the first translation from the Greek into English for the New Testament. In 1560, the Geneva Bible is published. It's the first published English Bible before the King James Bible, and it was the Bible that was on the Mayflower. came to America. And then, 1611, King James published his Bible, originally with the Apocrypha in it, which are extra books the Catholic Church uses, that but was removed in 1885. The King James Bible was translated using only four manuscripts, four copies. And there was also pressure from King James to translate certain texts in a way that benefited the structure of the Church of England. I say all of that to say the King James Version is fine. It's good. You can read it. It's great. There are things I have memorized. There's a lot of things Nathan has memorized in the King James. He can't quote the Bible without quoting the King James. <laughs> but what I do not want you to feel 
as, is as if you must read the King James or that if it is somehow superior in any way, it is not. Today, we are translating the Bible with more manuscripts and more scholarship and collaboration than ever in the history of the world. When you go buy a Bible, you can trust it. Now, let me, let me help you understand one more thing. When you buy a Bible, there are two types of translations that are not the same. Both are fine, both are good, but you need to understand which one you have. So there are two. One is a word-for-word -word translation, meaning it's going to be a little more wooden, going to be a little less easy to read. But what they're, what they're aiming to do is take the exact Greek words and translate it one-for-one, word-for-word. Get as close to the Greek or the Hebrew as possible. Some of those uh, include uh, the New American Standard, uh, the uh, English Standard Version, which is what I use, um, the Christian Standard Version, the CSV. Those are word-for-word -word translations, and there's many more. Then you have what are called paraphrase translations, which are, instead of word for word, they're thought for thought. Meaning, I'm going to take this verse, understand kind of what's being said in the verse, and I'm going to re-say it in English in a way that is helpful for you to understand it. And now that's fine, and that's good. It's more readable, um, but it's not necessarily the best for in-depth study. It's good for reading. It's good for new believers, uh, but not, not, not good for in-depth study. Some examples of that are the New Living Translation, NIV. Uh, the NIV, the NIV is actually kind of in between those two definitions. It kind of bridges that a little bit. Um, uh, the Message Bible is the most extreme version of a paraphrase. Um, it is very paraphrased. Fine to read, to understand, very paraphrased. Um, if you don't have a Bible, let me help you get one. Come up to me afterward and let me help you get a Bible. Um, because if you're going to learn and grow and know who God is, you've got to read the Bible. Uh, also consider there are study Bibles, which are... Bible's written, and there are scholars who write things in the notes and the margins. So when you read that verse and you have no idea what it means, you can go down there and read that, and they'll help you uh, read that. As I wrap this up, I want to give you two terms and definitions that are super important for what we believe about the Bible. You need to know them. The first is biblical infallibility. It is the belief that what the Bible says regarding matters of faith and Christian practice is wholly useful and true. It is the belief that the Bible is completely trustworthy as a guide to salvation and the life of faith and will not fail to accomplish its purpose. So here's what that means, that the, that the Bible is infallible. The Bible has a purpose. It has an intention. God has an intention in it to, to teach you, to show you what it means to be saved and how to be saved and how to live your life for Jesus. And it will not fail to accomplish that purpose. The purpose of the Bible is not to be a science textbook. It does not accomplish that purpose. It does not tell us how God parted the Red Sea or how the sun stood still or how God raises the dead. Those are miraculous mysteries. It does not seek to explain those things. It's not its intention. It's not even trying. Its intention that it will never fail in is to teach salvation and how to follow Jesus. And the Bible tells us that the word will never return void. It will always accomplish that purpose. The second word is biblical inerrancy. The Bible in, in, this is important, the Bible in the original manuscripts, the one Paul wrote or Matthew wrote or Moses wrote, that one is without error or fault. In all its teaching, it does not affirm anything that is contrary to fact. Our, the Bible is our final authority. Because the Bible is the very words of God. 
When you read the Bible, you are hearing the words of God. You can trust it, that it is true, that it is never contrary to fact, that it is reliable. Here's the, here's the deal, guys. My goal as your pastor, pastor of this church, is that our answer to this question, why do we do things this way? Or why do we do things that way? The answer to that question will always be not because that's how we've always done it, because that's the way I like it, because that's the way, the way church is done. That's not the answer. The answer is why do we do this or why do we do that? Because that's what the Bible says. I don't care about my opinion, your opinion, my preference, or your preference. Neither should you. I care what this book says. Nothing less, nothing more. And if the Bible is silent on an issue, which it's silent on a lot of things, we proceed with wisdom and charity. Our lives are built <coughs> upon the truth of God's self-revelation in his word. Our lives are not built on tradition. Our lives are not built on preference. Our lives are not built on a creed. They're not built on a pastor or a priest, but on the Bible, the word of God. The Bible is meant, its intent is to conform us into the image of Jesus. And so we must not think or take the Bible to, 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 to I don't really like what it says here, and so I'm going to kind of work to make it say something else or not say that. We must not conform the Bible to us. We, the Bible conforms us into the image of Jesus. It conforms us to itself. We don't change it, it changes us. We don't change the word or the word changes us. There are truths that are hard. There are truths that are uncomfortable. There are truths that we may not like them to be true. It may call you to do things you don't want to do. It may call you to stop doing things you don't want to stop doing. We don't change the Bible to fit us. The Bible changes us to fit the kingdom of God. May we always be obedient to his word, and may it shape, mold, and conform us into the image of his son. Let's pray. Father, this morning we gather and we celebrate you and that you've given us this book. Father, we're thankful that you would choose to reveal yourself, that you would choose to speak, that you would choose to show us who you are. Father, would you make us a church and a people on 22 and 3, Fellowship Baptist Church in 2021, that we would be a, a people who are committed to the book, committed to your words, committed to what you said, and committed to being obedient and doing and believing and trusting what you said. When we don't like it, we conform to it. When it's hard, we get over it and we press through. Help us to be a people who trust your word. Father, if there's anyone in this room who does not know you, who has not believed in your words, who has not believed in your son and what you sent him to do, to die on a cross to forgive us of our sin. Father, with this morning, would you help them to come and to place their trust and faith in you? Father, if there's people in this room who have doubted this book, help them to trust it. Lord, if there's people in this room who have, who have felt the weight of trying to make the Bible fit them, that there are sin patterns in their life or there are people in their life and the Bible uh, is going to make them do things or believe things that they don't want to do or think or change, Lord, help them this morning to submit, to bow their knees to the authority of your word, 
and to say, I may not like it right now. I may not believe it wholly right now, but God, help me to believe it and help me to do the things you've laid out in your word. God, help us not to be a people who try to do some gymnastics to make the Bible say the things we want it to say to fit 21st century values. But help us to trust that you are a timeless God, that what you say is true and right, trustworthy and wholly good to be a people who submit ourselves to. If you're here this morning and you want to pray, you want to, about whatever's going on in your life, you want to uh, come up here, we'd love to talk to you. We'd love to pray with you. We'd love to be there for you. You want to stand and praise the God who revealed himself. And let's stand and praise him. God, give us the courage to respond. In Christ, and we pray all his people said, stand together.